Mike Maples is a founding partner at Floodgate, a venture capital firm that was one of the first investors in Twitter, Lyft, Twitch TV, and Sparefoot. Mike was named one of Fortune Magazine's eight rising stars for his extraordinary accomplishments in the world of investing. In high school, Maples started writing video games for PC before earning his MBA from Stanford. After school, he went to Silicon Graphics, where he developed CGI that would ultimately be used in feature films by studios such as Industrial Light and Magic. He then joined his college roommate, Joe Lamont, at Trilogy Software, which went public and was acquired by IBM soon after its founding. The only thing you know when somebody says no is that they said no. Their objection doesn't mean anything. It just means you didn't convince them. On to the next person. Uh, and by the way, I find that that's true with customers too. Like having discipline and integrity enough to figure out who are the customers who value your advantage, sell to them what you have and to only them, and not engage in revenue chasing to the unattractive customers. In this compelling conversation, Mike shared investment tips for entrepreneurs searching for success and explained how proactive businesses can become empires. Please enjoy our conversation with Mike Maples. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. You're much more than just a VC. Um, I, you're a true inspiration to so many uh, here in Silicon Valley and beyond. And uh, to get us started, I really want to start with your journey. How was it growing up? What was like a catalyst experience that pushed you towards the direction of entrepreneurship and startups and technology? Yeah, well, I guess um, I would give credit to that uh, for that to David Packard. So, well, Hewlett and Packard. So. Uh, when I was in the first grade, I asked, and I'm going to date myself a little bit, I was born in 1968, which is probably, there's probably nobody in this entire room that old, but uh, there was a time I was the young person, uh, so it'll go fast, trust me. But so when I was in first grade for my birthday, I asked for an HP 55 uh, pocket calculator. And um, probably most of you don't realize this, but uh, the, the pocket calculator up until that point uh, a calculator was like a desk appliance. And so uh, Bill Hewlett challenged the company, the engineers there, to create something that would fit in a shirt pocket. And so uh, that calculator came out, and I was like, well, clearly I need one of those. Uh, well, you know, my parents had not long ago, my dad had just come out of the Viet Vietnam War, didn't have a big salary, and in today's adjusted dollars, an HP 55 calculator, is about like asking for a Mac Pro when you're in the first grade. And so uh, it, it didn't work out immediately. Uh, but uh, in the third grade, you know, there's this thing called Moore's Law. Uh, so third and fourth grade, we went to Radio Shack and my dad 
bought two of them for me, bought two Radio Shack calculators, one to, one to use and one to take apart. Um, so I remember uh, him helping me take it apart, and uh, we would solder all the wires, and we would label the parts. He'd say, this is a light-emitting diode. Okay, now wire the parts there, solder that. And you know, here's a key, you, know, you could buy the keyboard and replace it from what the Radio Shack calculator had. So we just dissected it and still made it work. And um, uh, that's kind of what got me hooked. And that's before the PC, that's before the Mitz Altair, that's before any of that stuff. Uh, and, then, and then later in life, I, uh, when I was a freshman at Stanford, I actually happened to just run into David Packard at, where was it? Uh, Trester Union. So he's sitting there at Trester Union, uh, by himself at one of those white tables. If, you, if you've ever been to Stanford, there's those crummy white tables at Trester Union. He's sitting there, and uh, I'm like, "Oh my gosh, it's David Packard." He's sitting there by himself, and and you know, um, for me, David David Packard was just it. Like some of you may think that about. Jobs or others, but he was the greatest example in my time. Sorry, I get emotional about this stuff. So, um, you know, I just went up to him and I'd heard he can be curmudgeonly at times. So I was like, okay, I better be careful here, tread lightly. Uh, I don't really have any ideas to offer. So I said, uh, hello, Mr. Packard. Uh, my name is Mike Maples. I'm a freshman here. Um, you know, I just. Um, what did I say? Oh, I just wanted to thank you for your contribution to the industry. You know, that, that was kind of it. And then I thought I'd just walk away, that'd be that. He's like, well, uh, do you have lunch plans? And I'm like, well, <laughs> not exactly. And he's like, well, I haven't really figured out what I'm going to get for lunch. You want to, like, maybe we should get something together. And so I was like, okay, sounds good. So we go through the cafeteria line at Trester Union, and we get lunch and sit down and have lunch together. And... Um, and I think it, um, it's hard to describe. I, th I think it made him happy that um, it wasn't just the engineers with the shirt pockets. I think it, I think it made him happy that some first grade nobody cared about his product. And so anyway, so... He's kind of what got me started, and then and then there were a few guys after that, but he was the main, he was the prime mover. Yeah. Awesome! Thank yeah. you for sharing that heartfelt yeah. story. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it. I'll, I'll keep my composure after that. But uh, you know, I just think that uh, Packard was just. I think Packard and Hewlett um, are often forgotten. You know, we talk about the problems of Silicon Valley culture today's world. Um, and I kind of wish they were here to like give some people a helmet adjustment. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. So yeah, I want everybody to keep in mind. So it was this yeah. calculator and this lunch, and then it led yeah. to so many great things that you've been involved in. So you set up a couple of companies that were huge yeah. successes. Um, you were living in Austin before coming to California. Yeah. What got you to come here um, and then you know start up Floodgate? Well, I'd been here undergrad, and then I went to business school and. Um, when I was coming out of business school, ironically, um, 
I was like, it's too late to be the David Packard of Silicon Valley, you know, so I should find the next Silicon Valley and try to do it there. And so I went to Austin, and I had a great experience, right? Both of the companies I got involved with were startups. They both went public. Nothing to complain about. But uh, I kind of concluded that there is no next Silicon Valley. And that I, you know, it, around 2001, 2002, I decided I needed to come back. And so, you know, we had five founders in the company, and it was 2001, 2002. It was a tough time in the tech industry. And so, you know, the agreement that we had was, when something good is about to happen, I could sneak out the back door because nobody will be paying attention. And so Motive went public in 2004, and so uh, I came out here in 2005. And my kids were still in school, so I would come out every Sunday night, stay till every Thursday, and just try to find something exciting in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. But I knew that it was obvious to me that the web was transitioning from being a web of connected pages to a platform and that it was kind of time to get the party started again with the internet. Everybody had gotten cynical about the, the dot-com meltdown. So I knew I had to be here. I wasn't exactly sure where it was going to go, but it just this kind of inner voice told me, you, you got to get back to Silicon Valley. Just whatever you do, it's got to be there. Let's rock and roll. Okay, awesome. Yeah. And so you've been on the Forbes Midas list since 2010, multiple years in a row. Uh, you've had your own entrepreneurial successes, and you've been able to identify incredible entrepreneurs way before uh, most other people. So if you had to kind of really, in a nutshell, um, articulate the philosophy that you have when it comes to startups and entrepreneurs, what would that be? Well, uh, let's see. It, it, for me, it's not even just entrepreneurs, right? So I have this saying I like to call uh, it uh, prime movers. So I think that uh, most of us live by the rules of other people's making. And there's a small number of people in this world that I call the prime movers who don't necessarily accept those rules. And they, they realize that most of the rules of this world that you experience are made by people who aren't any smarter than you, who aren't any more talented than you. They just had the courage to declare, I have a new point of view, follow me. And so when I think of prime movers, it's not necessarily entrepreneurs. Like you could have a startup if you're an entrepreneur, but you could have a recipe like uh, Thomas Keller at the French Laundry, or you could have a, um, what do I say, like a, a formula like Albert Einstein. Um, you could have a dream, you know, like MLK. And so... The main thing that I look for is people who say entrepreneurship is the way I'm going to express my gift in life to the world. And I don't know how to back, I don't know how to think about how I'd help Thomas Keller. And I don't know how to think about how I'd help the next Einstein or how I'd help the next other prime mover in another sector. But I do know something about entrepreneurs. And so I try to find... Um, those people before the rest of the world believes. And so I'm not a very buy low, sell high kind of guy, right? I'm sort of like, we're, th your idea is crazy, but I believe in the craziness. We're going to be crazy together. And um, if the car crashes, we go through the windshield together. But, you know, if it works, we're going to look like geniuses, right? And so... <laughs> But, but it's sort of like I'm looking for those people who aren't just doing a startup, but who are just saying, 
I can't do anything in this life other than this. I can't imagine, like, I, you know, Maples, I don't care if you fund me or not. I'm doing this. I'd love to have you along for the ride, but this is going to happen with or without you, with or without anybody, with or without VCs. And so uh, that's kind of what I'm in it for, right, is to find those people with the crazy, wacky, unconventional, but happens to be right idea that brings abundance to the world and then give them unconditional love before there's a parade. Yeah. Absolutely. And, the, you know, for a lot of investors, sometimes people say, well, you know, it's just you got to be lucky, right? Um, yeah, well, and it helps. It, yeah. I, I, so for, in your perspective, like, can you just give us a couple of examples of, like, mega successes that you've had, but at the beginning, how it just was like the unlikeliest thing. I think those... Oh, well, 100% of them. So, uh, Odeo. So, Odeo is my first ever investment as an angel. I get out here, and um, I invest in Nev. I was excited about podcasting. I invest in Odeo. Apple decides to get podcasting away on iTunes the next week. And uh, that's a real problem because 90% of all playback devices were iPods at the time. So you're giving away the software that runs on the iPods to do podcasting. And so we're like, ooh, that's kind of a problem. So Ev tries to turn it into a business. He can't. And some of his investors, I uh, won't name any names, but were, became really disenchanted. And so they started to put pressure on him. So eventually he calls me and says, I'm going to give everybody their money back. And he had the ability to do so because he had sold Blogger to Google. So he had the money. And I said, well, Ev, you know, I, you know, you win some, you lose some. I don't want my money back. And he's like, well, you kind of have to take it back because that's just legalistically what we need to do here. So I'd really appreciate if you just sign this document and take your money back. And I said, well, will you let me invest in your next thing? And uh, he says, uh, well, maybe uh, I've got some IP that I'm going to get to keep as part of our agreement. And I said, just tell me about this IP. And he goes, well, we're deciding what to call it. We're either going to call it voicemail 2.0 or TWTTR, and I say, okay, well, what, like voicemail 2.0, what are you talking about, and why don't you put the vowels back into Twitter, it makes, it's like you're trying to copy Flickr or something, right, and, but I'm like, what is, like, what does Twitter do, and he says, uh, you say what you're doing, and I'm like, okay, well, that, what happens after that, <laughs> and he goes, he goes, oh, 140 characters or less, because we want to work on mobile devices, and then I was like, okay, great, uh, what's the roadmap? There is no roadmap. What's the revenue model? There is no revenue model. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, well, um, Ev, you know, what makes you think this is even a product, much less a company? And he goes, well, I don't, I don't really know if it is. But he goes, uh, here's what I thought was when I wrote Blogger, over a million people wrote blogs. And then uh, we did podcasting. Podcasting kind of hard, aside from the fact that Apple ran us out of business even Apple's not doing that well with podcasting. It's hard. You got to record audio. You got to put it up there. You got to get subscribers. He's like, I think I want to go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. I think if a million people write blogs, I think 10 million people might write microblogs. And if that happens, then the burden of proof is on the people who are negative. And so I was like, all right, I'll fund that. But I remember leaving that meeting thinking, I've probably pretty much lost all that money for sure. <laughs> and um, now, you could sit here and say that I had some vision about the future and self-expression, stuff like that, but it's just, you know, I like to make fun of people who are too uncertain about, uh, or too certain about their ability to predict the future. 
And like, I, I look at life a little bit differently. I look at it as you're trying to put yourself on a bunch of roads to potentially get hit by the lucky truck. And um, maximizing the probability of luck to me has been a more durable life strategy than being too deterministic. If you're, if you're too convinced about how you're going to get from point A to point B, when the thing on the side of the road shows up that was the real opportunity, you won't have the presence of mind to see it. Whereas if you say life is all about understanding that you can take strategic, you can be strategically lucky, and that actually risk is not something to be afraid of, risk is something you take, like risk taking literally, risk is something you take, then you start to realize, okay, uh, life is about kind of positioning yourself to maximize luck and like listen to the world and what's around you so that when you see it, boom, you're on it. And it just felt like Ev would just probability get lucky someday if I kept working with them, just felt pretty good. So, yeah. So you look for prime movers. Uh, yeah, for and sure. another thing that you talked about earlier was um, you also look for people who are not just building companies and teams and products, but actually movements. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so like the, the way most people, I think, think about a company is you have a bunch of employees who build a product that you sell to customers. And I don't, I don't really see it that way. So like I, the, the best companies I've invested in, they have a provocative point of view. And they believe that their job is to make the world a better place by bringing them along to their point of view. So like Logan and John, when they started, well, Zimride, what became Lyft, they weren't trying to just make a buck on ride sharing. Logan and John thought it was ridiculous that cars are 3% capacity utilized, and that it's ridiculous that there's enough parking space to cover the entire state of Connecticut in this country, and that um, cities in this country are designed around cars and not people. They'd go to Europe and they'd see old cities that were made 500 years ago, and it's a pain to get through with cars, but it's really nice for people to walk down those streets and serendipitously discover what's good about those towns. And so, like, I see guys like that, and I'm like, those are my kind of people. Because they're not just trying to, like, we'll make money on this Lyft investment for sure, right? But what will matter about Lyft is they convince the world that it's not just about owning a car, but it's about the service of getting to where you want to go together. And um, that's a movement, not just a company. And so, um, and that's where I've had my most luck is where these companies, they don't just have their own employees building products and selling them. They have a point of view and they have believers. And the believers with them take that point of view to the world. And then the world says, well, I just don't see any other way. Like, why did I ever look at it the old way? This is the way. And so, um, yeah, and I just believe that's just a better form of capitalism. So that's, you know, and so far it's made us some money, so I'm sticking to it. Uh, so, yeah. so what do you think is the competitive advantage it gives you? Because, like, this sounds, it's so positive, you know, a very optimistic view of the world, which is, hey, bet on the people who are dreaming the biggest yeah. and looking to make a real big change. Whereas, you know, there's all the, you know, other ways of looking at it, which is like, okay, what's your acquisition cost, lifetime value, all this, like, you know, uh, metrics that sometimes earlier stage companies, quite frankly, they just don't know, right? Yeah. Uh, so what do you think is the advantage you have by like having this, like a bigger picture point of view rather than getting too granular on a business plan? Well, I, you know, 
it's tempting to think that you have more skill as an investor than you really do. So uh, I, I'm preoccupied with that a lot, right? Like some of these, it's easy to forget how random it was at the time. And, you know, you remember things differently when they work out. And you remember yourself as knowing more than you really knew at the time when it worked out. And you also, it's easy to forget, like, that we didn't, we didn't invest in Airbnb, right? It was called Air Bed and Breakfast. You know, Brian Chesky comes in with, like, cereal boxes. And I'm like, Brian, you know, what's up with this? I thought your Air Bed and Breakfast. And you got Captain Crunch, Captain Game and Crunch cereal boxes and Obama owes. What's up with that? And he tries to sell me a cereal box. And, and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not really interested in cereal, but like, what does Air Bed and Breakfast do? And he's like, well, we haven't been able to fund the company, so we funded it by hand-making these cereal boxes for the election. And so, like, I can promise you, if you'd been in that meeting, it was not obvious that Airbnb was destined for greatness. But I can promise you that was true of Twitter, it was true of Twitch. I mean, Twitch, which we fortunately did, it was Justin.tv, right? Justin walks into a coffee shop, baseball cap on his head, camera with wires into a backpack. I'm going to live cast my life. And uh, somehow we had the presence of mind to invest in that. So, like, I just, I tend to think that they're, these prime movers, they're doing something that's kind of edgy, kind of crazy, but you can tell they just completely believe in the area. And, you know, we're investing so early that the idea that we would really know what the business model is going to be is kind of an illusion. And, you know, you don't want to have false precision. There's, it's, there's no point measuring something where the precision is false because it will lead you to make decisions that are poor. So for me, it's kind of like how awesome are the founders, how determined are they, and how compelling is their insight? And did I come out of a meeting with that founder saying, wow, you know, those people changed my point of view on something. And those are my kind of peeps. Right, And more often than not, we fail. But the most important thing is that when we're right, we're really right. And so, uh, but back to the competitors, I don't really think about them. I think about the founders and what they want to do. And I just have faith that if I just keep doing that, they'll keep coming. Absolutely. So I want to um, get some very like practical advice from you for the audience, both for uh, when it comes to investing, but and also when it comes to running a company. So since we're on the investment track, let's start there. So for the particular angle you took was that venture capitalists, when you were starting out and creating your investment firm, usually they would write big checks, five million plus. Yeah. And then angel rounds were quite small, 250,000 or less, and you found this niche kind of in between uh, to seed companies. Now, Today, there's a lot of trends that are making it easier and easier for people uh, yeah, to, to invest. Awesome. So we have accomplished investors here in the room, but we have also many aspiring investors who are seeing all the awesome stuff that's happening here in SF and across the country and have more ability now to invest through things like AngelList. What would be your advice to um, someone who's looking to invest more, given like the probabilities out there and given like what it takes to succeed as an early stage investor? Yeah, I guess, you know, it's funny. I, I would give this advice to anybody, no matter what their job is, and it would be just how are you going to bring abundance to the world and make it better? And we didn't, you know, I didn't really start Floodgate because I was like trying to play some gap in the market. Like, entrepreneurs were telling me, you can't raise a million dollars in Silicon Valley. 
And so I was like, well, that's, that's crazy because, you know, offshore labor, broadband penetration, search engine marketing, you know, AWS wasn't a thing yet. But, like, all the trends are suggesting that 500,000 is the new 5 million and that, like, entrepreneurs are being underserved by the current financial ecosystem. So, like, I didn't do it to, like, because I had some angle. I was just like, well, like, if, if I'm going to make a difference as an investor, I'll make a bigger difference if I do this, then if I join a, a pre-existing firm as one of many partners, not, nothing wrong with that. But I was like, if I'm going to be a prime mover in finance, that's what I ought to do. And so now people say to me, well, how do you feel now that there's 300 seed funds and you got all this competition? I'm like, great. That means we were right, right? Our vision was right. And so I don't, um, I think people should think less about what their angle is and should think more about what's their gift to bring abundance. And the rest of it just kind of pencils out if you do that. Uh, and the challenge that you have is that just a lot, there'll be a lot of naysayers and a lot of noise around you telling you, well, that's not what everybody else thinks. And they'll, they'll give you the 100,000 reasons you're wrong. And you're, you are wrong if you're wrong on the first principles. But you're not wrong if people say, well, that never works, or that's a recipe for getting creamed, or a platitudinous reason that you're wrong. And so, like, you, you, got, you got to balance this trade-off of you got to listen to the—you want to seek out as many smart people as you can telling you that you're wrong. Because there's a lot of smart people in this world, and sometimes you are wrong. But when the smart person tells you you're wrong, are they telling you you're wrong because they know something you don't know? Or are they telling you wrong, you're wrong because they don't yet know something you know? There's a big difference, right? And like, like it was just obvious to me that if you started a fund in 2005 and invested 500,000 bucks at a time, that you could drive a semi-truck through that gap in the market. And nobody who was skeptical was giving any logical reasons why that wasn't true. And so I was like, okay, I've talked to the smartest people I can all of their objections to this idea are anecdotal, gut instinct, facts that don't matter in today's world kind of objections. So I'm like, well, now I really have to do it because I might be too late, and they're just totally wrong. And I'm just like, I'm on this, but like before everybody else figures it out. So uh, like, I guess like my advice to most people would be tune out the noise and hype, do your own work to figure out the unsolved needs of abundance of the world and just bring your A-game to it. And then the rest of it, will it'll work itself out. And if it doesn't, fine, you, you're wrong, do the next one. Got it. What yeah. are some like common pitfalls when entrepreneurs are looking to raise money that, that they make? Uh, they, yeah, I think the biggest pitfall, and, and by the way, I'm very sympathetic to this. So first of all, I'm not, I'm not arguing that, uh, that I necessarily behave well in pitch meetings all the time, or that all VCs do, or that VCs know something somehow. Uh, but I guess what I sometimes find is that founders can get caught in the trap of taking feedback too literally from every pitch meeting and then reincorporating it into their pitch, or taking feedback from their advisors and reincorporating it into every pitch. And before you know it, the essence of what they're doing is lost because they got 20 slides with every buzzword that's compliant with every piece of advice they got. And I think what you're gonna find is that um, when you're non-consensus and right, 
it's almost better if most of the world is not encouraging. Because, like some of you may have experienced this as founders, but what I found when I was a founder was that customers didn't buy, the, buy my product from me. They bought from me because they believed what I believed. And so when I think about entrepreneurs looking for investors, I'd say, don't think of this as a sales cycle where you're overcoming everybody's potential objection. Think of it as I'm trying to find the person who believes what I believe. And so to me, entrepreneurship is all about I have an advantage, and it's fundamental, and I need to find the people in this world who value my advantage, and I can't afford to screw around talking to anybody else. And if people don't value my advantage, it's nothing personal. It's just I don't have time to talk to them right now. I have to find those people who value my advantage. If no such people exist, maybe I should rethink it. Maybe I don't have an advantage. But like what I've always found it incredibly liberating to say, here's what my advantages are that are fundamental. Here's who would be irrational not to work with me if they believe what I believe. I need to find those people. And if somebody says no for reasons not related to that, they did me a favor. In fact, if they say no in 15 minutes, I got 45 minutes of my time back, I find the next one. But like saying, oh, they said no, I need to change my pitch so the next person will say yes, bad path. Like that's, that's the failure mode. Because before you know it, you'll, like, you'll confuse even yourself pitching these people. And then you'll hear an objection, you'll be like, oh, that's another one. Well, that objection is different from this objection. Well, the only thing you know when somebody says no is that they said no. Their objection doesn't mean anything. It just means you didn't convince them. On to the next person. Uh, and by the way, I find that that's true with customers too. Like having discipline and integrity enough to figure out who are the customers who value your advantage, sell to them what you have and to only them, and not engage in revenue chasing to the unattractive customers. Like having discipline and integrity with those early customers is like the asymmetric weapon of the startup. And if you do that, if, you, if, you have, if you're 10 times better in a few areas and you find only those people who value your advantages and you sell only to them and don't get distracted by everybody else and sell what you have and not promises that you don't have, you will be successful because you will find a set of people who believe what you believe, who you're 10 times better at helping, and they'll tell their friends who believe what you believe. And you'll start to accumulate attractive customers at an accelerating rate. And that's what success looks like. It's not trying to make everybody agree with you, right? And so, like, I, I sort of like the idea of having a provocative point of view that's polarizing. Provocative provokes, right? And I want some people to say, Maples, you're full of crap. That's not my person. But I want the people who say, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I want that, like... I don't even want to have to explain to them why they should take my money rather than the next person's, right? Like, I, I want it to be just, like, blatantly obvious to them. And so, you know, that's just, that, to me, that's like the essence of entrepreneurship, right? Is sort of know who your audience is and be just for them and not for everybody else. This is actually an incredibly mind-blowing lesson that, that actually applies in all areas of life. All areas of life, yep. Uh, but it just, like, I want to dig a little bit deeper because... Everybody gives you feedback all the time. Yep. And a lot of startups and life is iterating. Like, you have thoughts, and then the world reacts, and then you 
kind of think, okay, what I think of that and mold. But here what you're saying is, like a lot of what you're saying is going back to the authenticity, just like don't forget the why, like why you're doing something in the first place. Yeah. But it's interesting because like a lot of people would say, hey, just like listen to your customer and do what they say. But what you're saying is listen to the customer that most believes and most is likely to go that's, along with That's you. right. Like yeah. the, the, when I look at startups that win, they have this end-to-end value delivery system where it's the company that believes something backed by the investor who believes what they believe, selling to the customer who believes what they believe, telling the truth with no tricks, and it's clear as a bell. And it's like then, the question is, the leap of faith is, will there be a lot more customers like that someday? Will our point of view, will our crazy point of view that the three of us share be the point of view that prevails? Because if it does, we're going to succeed and be awesome. And like to me, that's what it feels like when you're on the path. And sometimes you, all three of you believe something crazy and you're just wrong. But like startups start with belief. And it's like if you, if you don't have the courage to stand for what you believe in, you got nothing. You don't have a startup, you got nothing. And so like that's why it's so important to just not do a startup, right? Like that's why it's so important for the startup to be an embodiment of your gift to the world, an embodiment of your belief system about how the world should be better, because it'll clank if it's not, right? You'll just, you'll quit too soon because you're gonna have multiple near-death experiences, all of them do, and you'll just, you'll, you won't love it enough to persevere through it. Okay, got it. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I'm probably talking. No, no, this is here. awesome. Yeah. I'm sure there's a ton of questions. So before yeah. we open to the audience, one last question I have is, um, you've been here for many years now. And yeah, there's been years, a lot yeah. of changes. Certain things are getting even cheaper to do. There's whole sets of new technologies. When you look ahead 5, 10, 15 years from now, uh, obviously it's impossible to predict. But what excites you the most? What do you think that we should all be kind of thinking about in terms of what's to come in the world of startups, in the world of investing? What are going to be like the trends that matter the most? Yeah, so... so um I guess broadly speaking, the thing that I uh, that I get excited about is sort of this uh, this notion of democratization of entrepreneurship. And so, one of the one of the things that was an accidental discovery when when I was just investing my own money in these startups, I noticed that a lot of the founders I were talking to I was talking to were women, or African American, or Hispanic. And I was like, huh, that's strange, because if you look at most of the tech companies that have been awesome, they were started by 20-something alpha geek white guys. That's just how it was. And so I concluded from my experience that when the barriers to starting a company collapse, when it costs a tenth as much money to start a company as before, the relative importance of capital declines. And more and more people in this world can raise their hand and say, I'm an entrepreneur, and not have to sort of bow at the altar of the priests of the $5 million Series A round. And so I was like, I think that's really important, right? So one of the thing, that, that's one of the reasons why I thought it was so important for Anne to start this with me. I was like, we have to be gender balanced from day one. And you know, if I could talk Michael Seibel into not doing Y Combinator and doing Floodgate, I would, right? He was one of the first founders that we backed. And, you know, he would add something to the mix, right? So 
but I believe that uh, in the next 25 years, we should see a female Bill Gates or a black Zuckerberg or, um, and not just that, but the abundance of tech careers should be brought to more people. So military veterans, when they come out of the military or the person that lost their job in Dayton, Ohio, who followed the rules their whole life and isn't looking for a better welfare. They're looking for an honest job where they follow the rules and work hard. And so when I think about democratization of innovation, it's not just bringing the abundance of tech products to people, but it's bringing the prosperity that tech creates to more people um, in terms of who can start companies, in terms of who can join tech companies. And so I think that uh, you know right now, the narrative on that's a little bit negative for some obvious and valid reasons, but this is another one where if you saw what I was seeing recently, I think the burden of proof is on people who are negative. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, And to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.